this morning to John chapter 15. We're continuing to work our way uh, through the gospel of John. Uh, I was joking with Hope this morning and I said, I, I, I'm sure it's Providence, but uh, why I chose to take up Jonathan Edwards and the gospel of John at the same time, I'll never know. <laughs> uh, it's been really taxing for my brain. Uh, the, the complicated language of Jonathan Edwards and then the complex uh, theological doctrines in the Gospel of John as well. Uh, early on in my Christian life, uh, I remember being impacted by a statement from bon, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I think it was probably relating more so to um, what he was facing in his day, but I think there was a spiritual application as well. But I remember being struck by reading this, but. Uh, the statement was, Christ bids us come and die. And that really had an effect on me early in my Christian life because it was so consistent with what I was reading about in his words. <clears throat> and, and it struck me since uh, that you hear that so rarely spoken uh, in pulpits and in evangelistic crusades uh, around America, certainly, and maybe even around the world. Uh, I've shared a testimony before I went to a, a conference or a crusade one time and, and the speaker there appealed to young athletes uh, on this basis, uh, if you want to be the best football player you can be, you need Jesus. And of course the altar filled up at the end of the service and I'm sure all of them got the blessing and they all went back to school with a positive attitude that they could truly be the best football player they could be if they had Jesus. And I I remember thinking to myself sitting there, I wanted to say something so loud and so strong uh, and just a, a loud rebuke that you have set these young men on a dangerous path because Christ bids us come and die. The entirety of your Christian life is going to be occupied by the putting to death of the old man through the scriptures, through the truth of God's word and by the spirit of God's word illuminating the darkness of the old man still residing within you. And that is the, the sum total of the, of the sanctifying of the Christian's life from this day to the day that you leave this world. And that's all about putting to death that old man. And it just seems so, so contrary to so much we hear about the Christian faith. Is there joy? Absolutely. Are there times of great blessing? Absolutely. Are there, are there times of lightheartedness and, and, and soaring joy in the life of the believer? Absolutely. But that is not to be preached at the expense of the dying that goes on for that to take place in our life. And, and it seems to me that Jesus is saying this in his own words here to the disciples at the end of John chapter 15. So let's pick up and read. Uh, I want to begin in verse 17 because I want to reflect back to that. Chapter 15, verse 17 this I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come to them and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it is your word. It is your truth. And I pray that by your spirit, you would cause it to land heavily in our lives today and, and that the sober realities reflected by Christ here would be embraced as a reality for the Christian even today. Lord, we know that all around the world, the hatred of the world for Christians is on display and we have been given great, great mercy here in this nation for many years in the freedom to follow our Lord. But Lord, even now in our day, we see that dwindling away. So Lord, I pray that the truth of this and the, and the glory of it as well would rest upon our hearts and minds this morning. So help me in the communication of these truths and Lord, help everyone here in the, in the hearing and the receiving of that truth which honors and glorifies you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. It was understood, I think in Route 318 uh, AD that Constantine um, provided for the legal practice of Christianity in Rome and by 380, I think, uh, there was an edict written that made it the official religion of Rome and they began to ban other religions. And from that point on, uh, I think set in most in the institutionalizing of what had happened, what had been born in the early church and uh, the Roman uh, the Roman men and the Roman uh, ideas and philosophies and their compulsion for, for order uh, institutionalized the church in such a way that uh, we still have some experience of that even today in our understanding of what the church is. But it seems to me that the institutionalization of that had some benefits that were not directly rooted to that. I said earlier that in this country, uh, it seems as though the very theological foundations that provided for freedom in this country were exercised and we enjoyed that freedom, but somewhere along the way, the, the foundations for it began to erode away and, and the freedom became a cloak for lasciviousness, as it were, in the scriptures. And, and all of a sudden, uh, they, they begin to move away from the foundations. And then now when we proclaim the truth, found the foundations of that liberty, the truth of Christ, then we begin to be hated for it. So it's, it's ironic to me that the very freedom that allowed for your departure from Christ becomes the source of your anger when it's rehearsed to you after all these years. And it just struck me as ironic. But I think that's the world we live in today. But up until that time, in fact, Jesus speaking now, uh, in the next several couple hundred years or several hundred years, the, the persecution of the, these believers was going to be severe, severe. 
I was reading a few, uh, a few articles and they were talking about the accusations they would bring against uh, Christians. Actually, they were accusing Christians uh, of dividing families. They were, they were separating and hard on the family. They're attacking the nuclear family, they would say, of Christians. Simply because the proclamation of the gospel, Jesus had said, would bring a sword, not peace. In fact, it would divide families and there would be uh, brothers and sisters who were divided because some believed and so divisive was the truth that it would cause families to disintegrate. So they attached that to the Christians and said, look, they're attacking the nuclear family. They're tearing our society apart. They're cannibals. They have, the, they, have their, they have their feasts and they even say in their feast that they are consuming the body and blood of Christ and, and it's cannibalism. They are sexually perverse. They have a love feast and it's really a code word for an orgy of some sort of sexual relations among the church and they had all these accusations against the church and it rose and rose and got to such a fever pitch that they began to persecute the Christians. That's why I shared with you that not many hundred years afterwards, the very empire that was persecuting the Christians would, would call Christianity, institutionalize it, and say it's a, the official religion of Rome. And so Roman ideals filtered into what the church was to become through the centuries, and there were all sorts of evils that rose up out of that. Well, Jesus knows that's coming. And I think in these passages, he's preparing them for that. He begins, uh, the reason I quoted verse 17 there was because I, I was viewing this in light of what he had been saying. I wrote this, the Christian who abides in Christ and who draws his life from Christ, who bears fruit under the care and sanctification of the Spirit, who obeys the word of Christ and who abides in the love of God, a love which is mirrored and demonstrated outwardly in a love for the brethren, will will provoke the hatred of the world. So when you read Jesus' words in verse 18, if the world hates you, Please don't hear that disconnected for all that he's just said before. That's why they hate you. They don't hate you for being religion. Everybody was religious. They don't hate you for being a religious person or even a devoted religious person. The world hates you because these things are true of you. You are abiding in Christ who is divine. And the Father is pruning your life so that the fullness of the life of Christ might be displayed in you. You are abiding in His Word and His Word is abiding in you and you are saying things and praying in ways that God answers and the world sees that and you are loving and peculiar in ways unique to your faith and not like the world and the world sees all these things and they hate you for that. That's why I think you can't disconnect this the world hates you because of that. Is there an inherent hatred for the truth and the glory of God in the world? Absolutely yes, but it's in the context here. As your life reflects the life of Christ and the glory of Christ, the, the provocation for hatred in the world rises and they will act upon that ultimately. So I ask this question of myself. In regards of that, what then can the disciple expect in the world or from the world or out of the world? And as I've already touched on, Jesus says very first of all, they should expect to be hated by the world. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. In fact, I'll back up to verse 15. 
John writes this, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here's a description of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So when we say the world hates you, we don't mean the creation hates you or the universe hates you. What he means to be saying is the world that is driven by these things, this world that isn't fallen and under the rule of the God of this world, this world system of self-exaltation and rebellion against God, that's the world that hates you. Another passage as well in Ephesians 2, you'll recognize this passage, but I'm seeing reading that in a different light. He says of these, these believers that they were once dead in trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked <clears throat> according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's the world. That's what he means by the world. In fact, in Romans 12, 1, you remember Paul's exhortation, be ye transformed, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind or your thinking. So, so that's the world he means here. That's the world that Jesus says to them will hate you. So disciples of Christ who were abiding in Christ and identified with Christ and the life of Christ being lived out through them by the power of the Holy Spirit, through obedience and loving one another as Christ loved us, that, that is going to come in direct conflict with that world that is described here. They will hate you. I think new Christians ought to be told that. In other words, what you've embraced and what you have believed and if you follow this Christ and his life is manifested in yours, expect it. Don't long for it. Don't pursue hatred. But be anticipating that the more you, more closely you identify with Christ, the more likely you are to experience the hatred from this world because it is in direct contradiction to all that they hold dear. So new believer Children who have been baptized or are contemplating that, who are professing Christ, understand that this world system is contrary to all that you have embraced in Christ. And you will eventually come head to head and into conflict with that very world. So don't be surprised. In fact, James says that. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials among you, for these things are necessary and providential in the refining or the proving or testing of your faith, and that they produce patience, which brings you to perfection, or I believe he means sanctification. So I ask this question, if that's what I can expect, and he, this whole passage is filled with the hate that's expressed here, I ask this question, so why, why is it that I'm so hated by the world. Number one, you see in verse 18 in the second part, is because he is identified with Christ. Notice that Jesus says, the world, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It hated me first or foremost. 
In fact, some people read that statement as an imperative. Others interpret it as indicative. Uh, some, some commentators say that it doesn't matter. It still has the same meaning. But Jesus is essentially saying, if the world hates you, on the occasion when you experience the hatred of the world, know this. You are not alone. You are not experiencing a unique thing in regards to the hatred of the world. Know something, and when he's, if it's an imperative, it says to me, something you need to know is foundational to your navigating the hate you were experienced. So therefore, imperatively, know this. They hated me. And as I've said, to the degree that you identify with Christ and to the degree that, that Christ will be Christ experienced to that which you experience. In other words, if you want to follow Christ from a distance, you may not experience the fullness of the hatred. But if you follow him closely and you let Christ's life be lived out within you, your experience will be the same as his. That's what he's communicating here. If they hate you... Or when you experience their hatred, know, be certain that it is the hatred that I myself have experienced. Some people believe also as well, but he says, know first of all that it hated me before you. The word before there could mean in sequence. They hated me before they hated you. And it could mean in priority or in rank. They hated me foremost of all. I think both of those things are true. In fact, in 1 John 1.10, what does it say? Jesus, that He was in the world, the world was made by Him, but the world knew Him not. In chapter 3 of John 19 through 20, listen to this. This is the judgment that the light, speaking of Christ here, has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. <laughs> hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So, so I think it could mean both here. I was hated long before you ever experienced the hatred of the world. I, I, I was hated by the world when I came into the world. I was hated by the world before I came into the world because they hated the truths of God and the, and the, the glory of God. They wanted to exalt themselves. So they, he experienced a hatred before that. And certainly after he came into the world, he was foremost hated by men and by the, this world. And Jesus is essentially saying to us, if you are my disciples, he goes on to say later, the servant should not expect more than his master. But if you are identified with me, if my life is reflected in the way you live your life, they're going to hate you. But know something for certain. It is me ultimately that they hate. And the fact that my life is being displayed through your life causes them to hate you. I thought to myself when I was reading this, uh, uh, don't take it personal, Larry. <laughs> But it is personal because they're killing me. So, so in a very real sense, I do take it personal. But the root of their hatred is Christ's life in me. My identity with Christ. And the world will always hate that. A second thing I think is in verse 19. The world will hate us because in his identity... In his identity, the disciple is not of the world. 
the, lo the world loves what it is, it, it is its own. He says here, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So the disciple will be hated by this world because he is not of the world. Now, we need to think about what he means there because he goes on to say, I chose you out of the world, so you were in the world. That's why I read the Ephesian passage. Yeah, you were in the world. In fact, you were filled up with the world. You were driven by the same impulses that compel lost men and blind and dead men in their trespasses. You were in the world, but you're not of the world. Now you have a different origin now. You are, you are running contrary in what you have embraced and what you exalt and what you yield to. You are running contrary now to the way the world operates. They, they hate you, disciple, because you are not of the same origin as they are. You are not under the same authority as they are. You are not under the same influences as they are. You are contrasting. In fact, you are shining light into the darkness in which they thrive. That's why they hate you. That's why they hate you. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, as I was sharing, indicates that very clearly. But here's an interesting part about that. Not only do they hate you because you are not of the world, by you give indications of having another origin, but I thought this was significant. Here's another reason they hate you, because you were taken out of the world. They hate it. That something overthrew the rule and the reign in the dark world and rescued you out of the world. They hate that. Oh, they love it when you run with them to excesses and, to, and you fall off into all sorts of debauchery. They love it because you were of the world and you were with the world and you were all together. But oh, how they hate it when the grace of God and the power of God overrules the rule of the darkness, reaches into the depths and pulls one out of the world and makes him reflect the glory of Christ. Oh, they hate nothing more than that. This world hates that. If you don't believe it, go to your workplace Monday morning or sometimes this week and, and drop restraint and let the glory of God shine through your life in obedience to Christ. Start speaking highly of the name of Christ. Exalt the name of Christ. And you'll find out very quickly how much the world hates that light shining. How the devil hates it. When God takes us out of the world. To me, that's almost more provocation for their hatred than the fact that we seem odd to them. We are not of the world. They hate us enough for that because that brings some illumination to the darkness of their lives. But oh, when God pulls one out of that darkness and then he testifies experientially of the depth of the darkness and proclaims the light by which he was brought out of the darkness, oh, they hate that with a passion. That's what... That's why the world hates you. I thought about this. If you're not experiencing at least some marginalized, at minimum, resistance in the world, it may be because you look so much like the world that you're not at all threatening or offensive to that world. In fact, you are doing what Jesus said not to do. You are hiding your light under a bushel. Disciples don't do that. They get it out from under there and they hold it up high in the room so that it'll illuminate the entire room. You do that and the world hates you. You ever been to a, in a room or somewhere and you flip on the lights and you see cockroaches scramble? 
Uh, they, they're thriving out there in the dark before that light comes on. They're living their lives and they're doing their things. And as far as they know, there's not a light in the universe and we have free reign. But when you flip the lights on, they scurry for the slightest bit of shade somewhere in the room. It could be, it could be something sticking out of the wall that's producing a shadow near the bottom. And they'll run right under that shadow and they'll stay in that shadow because they love the darkness and they hate the light. Disciple of Christ, they hate you because you have been taken out of the world. You have demonstrated Christ's power over that world. Another one here. They hate you because they serve a different, they hate us because we serve a different and a greater master. Verse 20, he says, Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept your word, my word, they will keep yours also. I think the world hates disciples indicated here by the fact that we have another master other than the world. And Jesus says clearly you can't serve two masters. Either you will serve the one and forsake the other or you will cling to the one and put away the other or despise the other. In that context, you can't serve God and wealth. You can't do that. You will have one superior. You will have one thing higher than the other things. And that's true. And the world hates us because we don't have anything higher as disciples of Christ, true disciples of Christ, than our master, Christ himself. And that illuminates to the world that they have another master. And here's what I think really angers the world is that our master has supreme authority over every other master that they have yielded to. He has power over sin in that he has come, overcome sin and pulled you out of the world and made you a light for his name's sake. And he has power over the dark world because he can raise up and put down kings at will in that world. Those things that you exalt, he can demolish with a mere breath. We have a superior master and we yield to a superior master. And as such, we are not subject to earthly masters in in so far as he has not commanded us to be. We are not dependent upon those. I think that's why socialistic and Marxist governments despise freedom so much, especially when it's rooted in Christianity. That's why all of those agendas have to push out Christianity because if there is a greater master in the life of a believer, there is a freedom that they can't suppress. It will always push back and it will never yield and subject itself to a lesser master. And so they must abolish that altogether so that they can exert a mastership by sheer power and authority and oppression. They establish themselves by power as masters in your life and you subject yourself to that. But oh, if if Christ is your master, you will go to your death before you yield to that. And such the martyrs did. You ever thought about the early persecution of the Christians? All they had to do Rome didn't want, their, didn't want their devotion. They simply demanded their allegiance. All they had to do is walk by a flame, pick up a pinch of incense, put it in their fingers, throw it into the flame and say, Caesar is Lord. How many Christians today do you think would think that a small price to pay and they would do it to preserve their lives? Most Christians, professing Christians today, I think would do that. And we would justify it and say, I didn't really mean it. It wasn't in my heart. I just went through the motions. 
Those early Christians didn't do that. They had one master. And for them to even utter the words that there was a Lord other than Christ was the height of blasphemy. And they refused to do it at the expense of their lives. And the world hated them for that. Because the world had no explanation for a devotion like that. And so Christian... The world hates you because you serve a different and a superior, greater, more glorious master. In verse 21, you see that the world hates us because we do not know, or they do not know, in a saving way, in the, at least, their master. Verse 21, he says, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Why? Because they do not know the one who sent me. That's why the world hates you. They don't know the one who sent Christ and they don't know the Christ who was sent and they don't recognize you from their world because you are united to Christ and Christ is being reflected in your life. I'm amazed sometimes at how believers will look at the life of an obedient Christian who in their own heart recognizes that every fruit born in my life reflecting the fruit of the Spirit is brought about by the mercy of God and the operation of the Spirit in my life. And they will look at that Christian and they'll say, man, they are really disciplined, aren't they? I, have to I don't believe what you believe, but i got to respect you because you seem to be living out what you say. And they, they glorify us as a disciplined Christian or a really devoted person to their faith. And they would compare us to the Muslim and to the Hindu and other religions where there is equals apparent devotion. But we know in our hearts, it is not of me. The fruit you see in my life is brought about by the Spirit's manifestation of the glory of Christ in my life. And they don't understand that at all. Why? Because they do not know the Father and they do not know the Son and they do not know the Spirit. And that's why they hate you. That's why the things that he's just described, that's why these evidences in your life are so offensive to them. If they knew the Father and they understood that these were all manifestations of the Father's glory and that he was over all, they might hear your words as he says later on and, and embrace those things. But the world doesn't see that unless God intervenes in the lives of those in the world and causes them to see those things. We're a weird bunch to the world. They look at us and, they, and they, try to, they try to figure out or explain somehow our life of devotion. They say things like, well, that's, that's that southern culture there. And that's, a, that's a tradition rooted somewhere in the past. They, they explain it all the way back. Well, maybe we are a nation rooted on those Judeo-Christian principles, but that's just, that's just haphazard. That's arbitrary. There's no real ground and no real truth behind that. We can reshape the nation on some other grounds because they shaped it on the grounds they thought best. They dismiss it somehow as not real. And when it manifests itself over and over as supernatural, they be angry about that because they don't have that. They don't know that. The world does not know our Father. In verse 22, the disciples will be hated because the word of Christ to which they testify intensifies and illuminates the world's sin. If I had not come and spoken to them to them they would not have sinned, but now they have not no excuse for their sin. He says later on in verse 24 regarding the works the same way. But one of the reasons the world hates us 
is because the Word of God testified through our lives and through our relationship with Jesus Christ intensifies their guilt. Now, please understand here, this doesn't mean they had no sin in their nature. Just the same as when Jesus says, if you would have said you were blind, you'd have no sin. No, if you said you were blind, you still have sin. What, what you say, confess by saying you're blind is a recognition that you have sin that you're not even aware of. And then there's an avenue for forgiveness. But if you say, I could see fine. You just doubled your guilt for sin. Not only have you not recognized inherent sin, but you have denied the very illumination of your willful sin as well. And that's what I think he's saying here. But see, the world hates Christians, hates disciples of Christ because they bring those same words and testimony of the glory of Christ to bear in the world. And the world hears that and they chafe against that and they resist and they feel rebellion in their hearts and offended by the truth of God because it demands something of them that they are not prepared to give and are not equipped to give. And so they hate that word of God and they hate you, Christian, when you proclaim those truths. I thought about this as well. When we think of this, you think in terms of those Involved in evils, all sorts of evils and debauchery outside the church walls. But I don't see Jesus excluding this hatred to, to outside the institutional church. I submit to you in our day, if you carry these truths into an into a institutional church, you'll experience the same hatred of the world because the church has been assembled upon, upon worldly doctrines and worldly concepts and worldly ideologies. And the truth coming to bear and the light shining into that will make them angry even as they sit in an institutionalized church. So don't, don't push this outside the walls of the local church. This hatred manifests itself as a spirit of the world. And that can be as present in the house of God or in the, in the local built church building as it can be at the local pub. The hatred can still be there. They hate you, disciple, because you are faithful to bring the truth of God's Word. It may be that we've gotten by with a lot of We've gained a lot of love and respect from the world because we have been compromising the truth. I'm amazed, even now, at the things the church has de-emphasized and no longer speaks much to because the culture has embraced it and has become more offensive to the culture today. And so we've, we've, we've soft-pedaled on that. We'll concentrate on something else. We'll preach against something that even the lost world would say, yeah, they need to stop that. But the trajectory of the sinfulness and the darkness in this world will move the world to someday they won't accept any preaching against any sin whatsoever. That every man will do what is right in his own eyes and they will heap up teachers around themselves that say you have God's blessing in doing so. The world hates the truth. It does. Now, I heard an old preacher say this. Make sure it is, these, it is this that causes the world's hatred to be expressed to you. Don't be a jerk. Don't, don't draw the ire of the world because you are obnoxious. 
Speak the truth in love. Sometimes speak it very firmly and boldly and greatly with great confidence because it is the Lord's truth. Other times speak it tenderly and compassionately and longingly and whimsomely. But speak the truth. Whatever the, the, the context, speak the truth. But don't be obnoxious. And don't be self-righteous. And don't act like it's your truth. You're proclaiming the Lord's truth. I didn't come up with this. I'm just ascribing to it and I'm trying to yield to it in my life and it's had drastic effects in my own Christ-likeness and I want you to experience it. It's His Word. It's not mine. And so you can draw the hatred of the world because you, you are offensive in and of yourselves. That's not, the, that's not the mandate that Christ is saying here. Christ is saying if you are faithful... Just as they have persecuted me, they will persecute you because your life and your adherence to the Word of God is manifesting the very same things they hated in me. And they will hate them no less if they see them in you because they themselves, these things are reminders of their hatred for me. Number seven here, or seventh one in verse 24 not only the word of Christ, but also the works of Christ. They hate us because of the works of Christ in the disciple that give evidence of the power of God both to justify and to judge. In other words, the manifestation of the works of God in my own life are illuminating to the reality of the judgment of God upon their own life if they remain in that darkened state. They don't want to be reminded of that. The world doesn't want to hear that. The, the least preached messages you hear nowadays are, are God's anger against sin. God's intention to, to uphold His own righteousness in the eternal condemnation of sinners. You don't hear that that much because the world doesn't want to hear that I am deserving of eternal condemnation and that would be rightly and just in the eyes of God and in the character of God to bring about that condemnation and it is also illuminating to them that God has been merciful and called us out of the world and has forgiven our sins that's offensive to the world in fact you hear them often passing judgment upon God right Especially if you speak of things like election or God's sovereign grace activating. The, the accusation that arises in the hearts of fallen men is, is what? Well, that's not fair. That's, that's not just. And Paul speaks rightly. Who are you, O man, who judges God? Will the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? No. Clay doesn't speak. I've done some pottery in my life, and I've never yet once had a pot to look up at me and say, Hey, I don't want to be a pot. I want to be a cup. Not once. I shaped it into what I wanted it to be. It dried. It became exactly what I intended it to be. And never one time did it ever accuse me of some injustice. Why? Because I have power over the clay. And just as God has power over humanity, whom He will save and whom He will not. It shows to me the worldly spirit in men when they chafe under that reality rather than rejoice in it. To me, it is to be rejoiced in, especially if you have come to know Jesus Christ by the power of the grace of God. He has drawn you out of the world, transformed you by the implantation, as it were, or the indwelling spirit in your life, declared you just in His own eyes through the sacrifice of Christ. Joy, joy, joy. 
And the world don't have that kind of joy, and they hate it. And they hate those who testify of that as well. A couple more real quickly. The world hates us because the ruler of this world sees in them, in these disciples, the signal of his ultimate overthrow. In verse 25, when Jesus says, But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. It's a quote from Psalm 69, 4, 1. There's another psalm. I couldn't recall the quotation there. Isaiah speaks to this as well. And obviously, if you read that psalm, it is messianic in its implications. And so Jesus is saying, they hate me and they have hated me to fulfill what God hath ordained here in terms of my messianic role. I am come to save the very men who have hated me and their hatred of me will drive me to the cross and they will willfully put me upon the cross to silence me. So these men inadvertently through their hatred are bringing about what God has ordained for their salvation. And to me, I, I thought about that and I said, when we proclaim that message and when we, when we endure the hatred of the world for the glory of Christ, we reiterate to Satan his own overthrow, the ultimate victory won over Satan. And he stirs up the heart and the kingdom which he is ruling temporarily in this world. And he stirs the, the wicked hearts of men to hate the very testimony of his own overthrow in Jesus Christ. And Christ's ultimately victory, ultimate victory over him. Nothing makes the world matter, it seems to me, than the exaltation of Christ and to speak of, the, of Satan as a, as a soon to be overthrown and cast into the pits forever and ever enemy, a destroyer and a murderer. That enrages the world who is operating under his sway and under his influence. He is the ruler of this world. It is said in Scripture. And then the final one I was drawing from verse 26 and 27. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So he's going to be a Helper. He's coming alongside. He's coming from the Father. He is the Spirit of truth coming from the Father who will be testifying about me who just said earlier, I am the truth. So the Spirit's coming to testify about Christ, and He will also, this Spirit, testify, and you also, through this Spirit, I believe He means, will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. The world hates us. The world hates the disciples of Christ because they will testify with divine power of the glory of Christ. You think about what stirs this fallen world up more than the Spirit prompted, uh, guided, testimony, clear, bold of Christ and the glory of Christ. If I, I was thinking about this. If I just, for me, I don't think it would be possible even because if that truth moves me, it's going to manifest itself somehow in my emotion. But if I just dryly, said some things about Jesus, there might be some people who would not be offended by that. They would, in an intellectual thing, I think I read this week that, uh, I think it was a devotional I read this morning that was talking about 
We have this intellectual compulsion to contain all the knowledge of God in the head and it'll split the head. Theology is to shape the heart. Yes, it works through the mind, transformed by the renewing of your mind, but it moves the heart. The heart engages and is moved by the glory of Christ. The testimony, spirit, guided spirit, spirit carried along testimony of the glory of Christ is deeply offensive to the world and they hate it. That's why I think when I, somebody asked me one time if you'd share your testimony and I'm saying, I always say to them, which part? You want my conversion experience? You want the first two years of my sanctification? How about yesterday? Because it's an ongoing testimony of the power of Christ at work in my heart through the Spirit, through the illuminating of the truth that is putting to death the old man every day and every moment of every day. And sometimes I fail and sometimes he picks me up, points that out, re-encourages me and moves me along the way. What part of my testimony do you want to hear? That's the question we should ask. But here's what I say. You ever heard somebody give a testimony that has very, that does not, it doesn't attach itself to the truth of God's Word. In other words, if we make a statement, you ever think about taking your testimony and taking it apart and find the biblical foundations for it? In other words, when you describe your being born again, search the Scriptures and determine how it is that that happened and then tie that to your testimony. I was on my couch on a Saturday night, on a Saturday afternoon with the sun going down and the, and the overwhelming feeling of guilt came upon me and I fell to my knees and cried out to Christ there. Attach some Scripture to that. The wages of sin is death. That's what was paramount in my mind at the, mo at the moment. But the gift of God is eternal life. That came illuminated to me in the moment as well. But attach to your testimony true biblical realities and proclaim it that way. And I'll guarantee you the world will hate that. They'll hate that. They don't care if you got delivered from drugs and you assigned it to some religion. But you put directly into the power of Christ and the power of the truth of God's Word to transform an addicted life into a God-glorifying life and you point to Jesus, 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 Jesus over and over again. The world will tell you eventually, will you shut up about the Jesus? We're okay with the deliverance from drugs, but not at the, not at the power under the power of Jesus. Because we know people that have come off drugs that didn't need Jesus or didn't have Jesus. That's the way they'll justify it. So here's my point this morning. If we, if we abide in Christ and the Father is sanctifying us and if the life of Christ is flowing through with us and His Word is penetrating into our hearts and we are abiding there in His Word and we are obeying that Word as we're going along and as we begin to love one another as He loves us, then that, then that sets us apart from the world as a peculiar bunch. And the more closely we follow Christ and the more closely our lives resemble the life of Christ and the more the glory is shining through our own lives, the more likely it is that we will endure or face the hatred of this world. I've said many times, through marginalization at first, they'll just ignore you at the water fountain. You go to the break room and they'll, you'll find yourself sitting over by yourself having your lunch because you make them uncomfortable. But if you keep pressing and you keep experiencing the transformation into Christ's likeness, eventually they'll figure out a way to bring some accusation maybe to get you fired from your job. 
And then you'll have to go look for another job. And then that, that, that recommendation will follow you. You can't use them for a reference because they're going to say, well, he just irritated everybody around here with his gospel preaching and his teaching. And we, we just couldn't put up with it. And then they may not hire you. And the marginalization will become, eventually, if you don't quieten down, it'll become pushing you out altogether. And then that'll increase onward and onward and onward, and they'll become more aggressive. They'll become more frustrated, more aggressive. And some way, someday down the line, maybe not far, maybe far away, farther away than we think, but somewhere along the line, someone will come up with the ultimate solution, which is let's just silence them all together. Let's just silence them all together. Let's require of them something that would be a direct contradiction to all that they say they believe. And if they are willing to do it, then we've conquered them because they've yielded to a greater master. And if they don't do it and they hold to their present master, we will silence them permanently. Send them to the Colosseum. Send them to the stake. But we will silence them permanently. So we'll silence all the ones who are faithful and we'll tolerate all the ones who have compromised in their, in their obedience and their devotion to their master. And we'll build, let them build their church out of those folks. That's how we got to where we are today, I believe. Because we began to build the church around folks who were not willing to, to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, even as the world hated them. And it feels to me and it seems to me like God is calling us back to that foundation again. Is, is this Christ worth it to you to endure marginalization and to the other extreme, even death. I don't ask that presumptuously about myself. But I pray that the Spirit of God would grant me the courage and the boldness to believe so strongly in what He has promised that whatever the world can do to me will be nothing in compared to the, the assurance of that promise. And then I think we'll begin to see the more that light of Christ begins to shine through the church, the more you watch it mark it down the more the world will start hating the church. The more the world will hate us. But we win the victory. <laughs> the victory is ours. It's already been purchased for us in Christ. So stand with me and, and let's be... Uh, just on a side note, that's it's one of the reasons to me the local gathering of the body of Christ is so important because we, we're honing one another. God is using us instrumentally in one another's lives to draw our attention to the to the weightiness of what it is we are doing as Christians. And I think that's necessary for the difficulties to come because we, there may be times when I have to lean upon you heavily and there'll be times when you have to lean upon me heavily. But if we disintegrate and go our ways, who are you going to lean on? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the disciples that you have called out who are present here in this room. And Father, there may be some who have who you've not yet called out of darkness. I pray that that will happen today, even this moment. And Father, I pray that you would cause us to understand that what we believe and what we profess and, and the transformation that that truth and, and the Spirit is making in our lives of, is making us each day more and more distasteful to a world that, go, that is going in another direction, that is yielding to another master. And Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to be, to be ridiculed and persecuted and, and to do so for the name of Christ. And Peter tells us that if we're to suffer for the name of Christ, let us rejoice. And Father, I pray that you would do the work in our hearts that would prepare us for that rejoicing in the face of difficulties and suffering and persecution. 
Lord, thank you for this word of Christ to his disciples, certainly to his apostles, who all, perhaps with the exception of John, would die as martyrs. And Father, I pray that the truth of it would apply and be born into our lives as well. So have your way, Father, in these moments of invitation. Let your spirit speak to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name.